0: I'm happy to be back for another year of uh, winter Bible study. It's not quite January Bible study. Uh, It's it's not really March Bible study. We'll just call it winter slash spring Bible study. And uh, this year it is the book of Revelation and not the whole book of Revelation, just the first three chapters. So we, we got off to uh, hopefully a good start this morning uh, as we looked at the, the introductory chapter and we're still gonna come back and do more of that. If you got the handout that was uh, passed out as you came in, uh, we did the prologue this morning, uh, verses one through eight. And we're, we're gonna talk about the vision in a moment, but we're gonna get to the, the seven churches. And so we've got these three main headings, prologue, we did that in the Sunday school hour. Uh, We're going to start with the first church, uh, the church at Ephesus, in just a moment. And then while we're doing that, we're going to pick up the vision uh, among the churches. And then tonight, we'll come back and try to do maybe four of the churches, maybe two, three or four. We'll see how it goes. Um, And then on Wednesday night, we'll finish it out uh, with however many churches I have left to cover on Wednesday night. So if you'll open your Bible with me to Revelation chapter 1. Actually, we're going to start now in chapter 2. We'll come back to, to a little bit in chapter 1. But we're going to start in chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through uh, 7, and what Christ, the Spirit of Christ has to say to the church at Ephesus. So now, seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. The first letter comes to the church at Ephesus. I think the fact that he writes the letter to all of these churches, including the church at Ephesus, uh, helps raise a question for all of us. It's a question I hope you're thinking about in the sermon this morning. I hope you're thinking about it tonight. I hope you're thinking about it Wednesday night and beyond that. What does the Spirit have to say to this church? And, and we're going to see that as we go through each letter, it, they follow a similar pattern. There is an opening. And it's usually just one verse, and that's the specific church that the letter is written to, and then a statement about who's sending it. And in every case, the sender is the exalted Christ. He's responsible. John might be putting the pen to paper. John might be the immediate person that's sending the letter, but ultimately, these letters are coming from the exalted Christ. So we'll find that in the opening of every one of the seven letters to the churches. And then it moves very quickly to the message. And in four of the seven churches, the message is both of affirmation and correction. Now, two of the churches only get affirmation, and one of the churches only gets correction. But four of the seven, there's both affirmation and there's correction. And I'd like for you to think about, in your own life, and even more than that, the life of your church. If if the Lord were to speak to your church today through the Spirit what would the Lord have to say? What would be the affirmation? And what would be the correction? It would be a good practice and I'll probably do it on Wednesday night. I'll probably ask you to get out a sheet of paper and think about that very question and try to sketch out what you think the spirit might say to this church in terms of here's where I affirm you. I know your deeds and here are the positive things, but also to ask yourself the question, where might we receive correction? And we're going to see that in, throughout these seven letters to these churches, but I think it's a question to ask of our own church. So we, we're going to have an opening. We're going to have the message, which tends to be affirmation and correction. That's going to be true for the church at Ephesus that we're going to look at in just a moment. And then there is a call to hear. Hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. And then there's a motivating promise. And in every one of those, it ends with a promise to the church that endures to the end. And I think that's not a reward as much as it's a motivating promise. It's what keeps us running even when the, the situation might be difficult. And so what is it that the Spirit wants to say to the church today as he speaks to the church at Ephesus? There are going to be differences between their situation and ours. If I look at the church now, I think there's some issues that the Spirit would say, to the church is. Not just this church, but to the churches. It might be something about complacency. We have this great blessing as churches in the United States that we have been blessed with a good deal of affluence, we, we have a, a lot of folks in our churches who don't worry about where our next meal is coming from. We don't worry about will we have clothes to wear to school tomorrow. Now, that doesn't mean everybody has more than they need. But the vast majority of folks in churches that I've been in in my 22 years at OBU, I encounter people who, by the world standards, we're pretty affluent, we have cars, we have clothes, we have food. We're not worried about the basic necessities of life. Now, that's not 100% true, but that's largely true. I also find in, in the Baptist churches that I've been in in Oklahoma over the last 22 years quite a bit of influence. That there, I've met lots of people in the churches who are civic leaders, who are important leaders in their community and sometimes larger than their community. I mean, I just finished an interim at Quail Springs in Oklahoma City, and um, James Langford is a member of that church and was there frequently while I was interim there. And, and it's a, it feels a bit different when you're talking about the issues of the day, knowing that there's someone sitting in the congregation who might be meeting with the president's cabinet that week. That, that's a tremendous amount of influence. That's on a national scale. We have Baptists and there are others in leadership in Washington who are Baptists from Oklahoma. But, but that's the big scale, even on a smaller scale. Uh, in, in communities all over Oklahoma, there are civic leaders, leaders in those communities who are members of Baptist churches in those communities. Now that's the blessing, it, it's, a, it's a great thing to have the basic necessities met in your life and to even have influence in those communities. But here's the danger of all that. It can build a certain amount of complacency when you can make your own way, when you can see a way forward and not have to depend upon God. I mean, when we sit down at a meal and say thanks to God, I think about his prayer when he, when he taught his disciples to pray, give us today our daily bread, and he's talking to people who don't know if they're going to have today's bread. And you think about sitting down and, give, and saying, grace, when food has been served to you and you didn't know if you would have food today, how grateful you would be to receive a meal when you weren't sure if you would get a meal that day. When we sit down and say, grace, when we give thanks for the food, it's sort of like, well, thank you God for giving me the job so that I can buy this food that we're going to eat. It seems like God's a bit removed from providing it for us. That's, there is a complacency that can come with having enough and having influence. I think this is one of the things that the Spirit might have to say to the church is something about our complacency. I think also there's a struggle for us to maintain separation from the culture around us. I think we're tempted to see other movements that happen all around us and want to copy it or mimic it because it seems to be successful. And the question I keep asking when I go to a church or if I visit a church is what makes this place different than some civic organization that has members in the community? What's different about the church from all the other organizations that might function in the community. And maybe those organizations are about doing good things. Maybe they have purpose statements that are about making a difference in society and I say amen to that, but what's different about the church? Are we just another one of those organizations? And should we just mimic what's being successful in other organizations or sometimes even other churches? Maybe there's some other movement and it seems to be on fire and it seems to be growing and everybody's saying, why aren't we more like them? Well, maybe what they're doing is not going to be lasting. Maybe it's not going to be permanent. Maybe we need to remember that we are distinct and different from every other institution in the world. And we shouldn't look just like everything else around us. I think also we struggle with a stagnation. And here's how this stagnation sort of manifests itself. We say we're interested in evangelism, in sharing the gospel, in bringing other people to Jesus. And in my experience, Baptists are all about evangelism. We love evangelism, especially when someone else is doing it. And there, there is a certain stagnation that can come in a church where we are content with growing by one uh, getting members from other churches, and two, baptizing our children. And that's the primary avenue of growth for our church. And we're really not that invested in reaching out in our communities to people who are not already part of another church, who have no connection maybe to Christianity, who might not even appear to be interested in Christianity. I think complacency and the struggle to maintain separation and stagnation are all... Dangers that a contemporary church in America needs to be aware of. And I think some of those same concerns were true for these seven churches. They're going to be different, they're going to have different situations. Primarily, they're often being persecuted, and we are not. So that's going to change some of the issues they're dealing with versus some of what we deal with. But we're all in this together us and these seven churches. We're all trying to maintain our commitments to Christ. We're all trying to be his authentic people in a world that has gone wrong. We're all trying to live the way of the lamb in a world that seems very much opposed to that. And so let's hear what the Spirit has to say to the church at Ephesus. So here's the opening. It's gonna tell us who's the recipient, what church it is, and who's sending it. Verse 1 is the opening. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. So we find out that the first letter is to the church at Ephesus. The largest city of the seven churches. The most prominent city in Asia Minor. So you've you've got the continent of Asia. You're talking about Asia Minor which is the western portion of Asia. And all seven of these churches are in this Roman province known as Asia Minor. And If you were on the island of Patmos, like John is, riding to these churches, it's about a 40-mile boat ride from the island of Patmos uh, to where these churches are situated. The first port you would hit is the church at Ephesus. I don't think the first letter comes there because it's the most prominent. It's just the first place you would land coming from the island of Patmos. And then you're going to see the seven churches, Smyrna, uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. It goes in a, almost a circle with each church 30 to 50 miles apart approximately. This letter happens to go to the church at Ephesus. A population of about 250,000 probably at the, the time when this letter is written. It's maybe the third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was, a, it was an important trade center because it was a port city in the first century. So you had trade routes running directly to Ephesus, to the port at Ephesus on the Aegean Sea. It was known for its trade. It was known for being a cosmopolitan city. It was also known for being a city of idolatry. And that's going to be true of all seven of these churches. They live in idolatrous cultures. Now, at Ephesus, the particular worship there was towards the goddess Artemis, or in the Roman system, Diana. Now, I went to Ephesus a few years ago. And actually purchased an Artemis, uh, I won't, don't know what to call it, I guess it's an idol. I do not worship it and I've not brought it for you to worship today. But this would be the kind of thing that you would see sitting around houses and all over Ephesus was this, this uh, idol, Artemis. In fact, the city was known for having an enormous uh, temple to the goddess Artemis. It was four times as large as the Parthenon in Athens. It was made completely of marble and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You can go there today and you can't see much of it, but you can still see one of the large pillars. I stood next to it, took a picture next to it. Uh, it, It's kind of neat to see these ancient excavations and see what the first century would have looked like or be able to imagine it. Ephesus is one of those cities you can see so much of what the city would have looked like in the first century. But the worship of the goddess Artemis included obviously idolatry. It often included eating in these pagan temples. You would eat meat that might be sacrificed to the god or the goddess. And often it involved sexual immorality. A temple like to the priestess Artemis would have temple prostitutes And having sex with those who come to worship would be part of what that worship would look like. Now, I'm going to hide my idol here uh, behind. I think the musicians kind of didn't like the idol sitting there at their feet today, but there it is. So you've got the worship of pagan deities, namely Artemis at Ephesus, which would involve eating meat, sacrifice to the deities, as well as sexual immorality you also had the worship of the emperor in, in a city like Ephesus. Throughout these cities, you're going to have the call to be so patriotic towards the, the, the emperor and the empire that you are willing to worship. There were temple cults throughout this part of the world. And you would go and you would, it would be dedicated to a particular emperor and you would worship the dead emperors. And in a sense, you're worshiping just the emperor. It was uh, sort of, wow, we might think about patriotism on steroids. Now, that's the kind of culture we're talking about that this church is planted in somewhere in the mid-50s. Paul spends three years at this church at Ephesus. Now, think about being God's people, being the church in that kind of pagan environment. That's precisely the situation they were in. I think you can imagine it because we live in a very similar kind of environment. We live often in sort of cosmopolitan kinds of settings and we live with a great deal of idolatry all around us. There might not be a temple raised, dedicated to a god or goddess, but we find our own ways to elevate things above God that can clearly become idolatry. Now that's the church. Who's writing this? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now here's where we find out that the vision that John has in chapter one, verses nine through 20 becomes the lens through which we, sh- we should see all seven of these letters. So let's go back and see the vision that John saw so we know who the one is who has the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says in verse nine, John does, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. John, when he writes to these churches, he establishes common ground with them. I'm your brother, he says, reminding us that the church is a family a family of God. We are brothers and sisters. And and John uses that language to establish common ground with the people of each of these churches. And then he says, I am your companion in suffering. Whatever suffering they might be enduring, John knows it. He's enduring it on the island of Patmos. And, and we, we, don't, we, we know quite a bit about this little island. It's about 10 miles long and about six miles wide. And it was a place that the Romans put insurrectionists or people that they thought were somehow a threat to Roman society or culture. And there are early church fathers who talk about John's situation there. There's one that reports he had to work daily in a rock quarry. There's another that says he was boiled in in water, not to be killed, but to be tortured. So when John says, I'm a companion in your suffering, whatever suffering they might be enduring, he knows that suffering. He's speaking to people who are suffering and as one who is also suffering, He's their companion in suffering and in the kingdom of God. It's a reminder that these brothers and sisters were part of the kingdom of God, but they were also at war with another kingdom, a kingdom of Satan, a kingdom of the beast, the kingdom of Babylon. And this kingdom was set against the kingdom of God. He says, I write to you as someone who is a fellow citizen with you of the kingdom of God, and I share in your suffering. He's creating this common ground with them. And then he talks about he's their companion in patient endurance. Endurance is going to be necessary in times like the situation in which they are living. And he says uh, that this John was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He says in verse 10, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, Often, the trumpet is associated with the appearing of Jesus. We see it in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's the image of Jesus appearing, and there's the mention of a trumpet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52. In, the, in, the, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised It's a picture, again, of the appearing of Jesus. And so here is the appearing of Jesus to John. And here's what this exalted Lord says. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And now here's the vision. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, we don't have to guess what the seven golden lampstands are. If you look down in verse 20, he tells us, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what are the seven golden lampstands? They're these seven churches that he's addressing. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, The image here is of the Son of Man, who is Jesus, who is among the lampstands. What's that mean? He is with the churches. His presence is with them. He's moving. He's walking among the churches that make up these these seven churches. He is among them. He is with them. And this is drawing upon a passage from Daniel. Listen to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. One like a son of man. And we might think about son of man and think that's a way to describe a human being. Like, we're all a son of man or a daughter of, of a man. We're brought about by natural means. We, we have parents. We have a father. We're a son of man. I think the New Testament usually is not pointing to the humanity of Jesus, but rather his deity, that he is the Lord of all who rules and reigns. And I think it draws upon this Daniel chapter 7 passage. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Here's the picture of a son of man, a God image coming down out of the clouds, who is son of man. And here in this great vision that John sees, he says, Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, drawing on that Daniel 7 passage. And what does he look like? Well, he's dressed in a robe, a long robe with a golden sash or belt. Who has a long robe and a golden sash but someone who is a king? It's an image of royalty. And then he says in verse 11, The hair on his head was white like wool. We're going to find out in the book of Revelation that white is an image of purity. A white garment means that you're part of the people of God. Even those who are suffering, those who have already given their lives as martyrs, he promises that they will have a white robe. And here is the image of, of this exalted Christ. And his hair was white like wool, as white as snow. Now, this is probably the way in which I'm most like Jesus in this uh, image. If I had enough hair for you to see it, you'd see it's rather gray these days. I keep it cut short so you don't see it as well. But this exalted Christ hair is not white because of like premature aging or worry. The white hair here is an image of purity and dignity and wisdom. So he has a long robe with the golden sash. He has white hair on his head, and his feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. Bronze feet is a picture of stability and strength. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. If you think about, if you've ever been to a waterfall, that powerful sound of the water coming over the falls and crashing into the river or the, whatever the stream below. We got a few of those in Oklahoma. I probably think more of like Niagara Falls, but you can hear that powerful water and the force of it. I would imagine John on the island of Patmos maybe hearing the water breaking in the waves crashing against the shore at at the island of Patmos, the Aegean Sea crashing against the the shore. But that's the sound he heard. When the voice speaks, it's like the sound of rushing Mighty waters, it speaks of power and majesty. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. What are the seven stars? Go down again to verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw under the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now maybe he's talking about literally there are, there's an angel or a protective angel or angels of the churches and, and he has them in his right hand. So they have authority over the churches, and he has authority over the seven stars or the seven angels. The word angel also means messenger. It's a Greek word, angelos. It can be translated angel, but it can also just mean messenger. Maybe it's the pastoral leaders in these churches, and they have authority over the churches, and he has authority over them because they're in his right hand. But it's an image of God's sovereignty and God's authority. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. That reminds you of Hebrews chapter 4, about the word of God is is, uh, alive, living, and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. That image of a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth is an image of his powerful word. It's also an image of judgment. The one who has the sword has the power of capital punishment of life and death. In the ancient world when you see Caesar with the sword in his hand, that's the image of his authority and power over life and death. The authority of judgment, but also of protection. The one who has the two-edged sword is also the one who protects his people. And so we have uh, uh, this coming out of his mouth, a sharp double-edged sword and his face, was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. That image of his face shining is of glory again and majesty. And and what did Jesus say about himself? I am the light of the world. When John talks about the world being created, he said in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And in him was life, and all life comes into being through him. And then by verse 3 he's saying, "And, and he was the light coming into the world again it's an image of his glory and majesty he is the light of the world you can see his face shining that's the one who's sending this letter john might be writing it but this exalted lord is sending it and i don't think the images do the exalted christ justice I mean, if you just take this with some sort of just flat-footed literalism and you make the exalted Christ literally with bronze feet, uh, literally with fiery eyes which show piercing, ability to see and burn through hypocrisy, white hair, the sword coming out of his mouth, uh, the face shining like the sun, you put all this together and, and I don't know what it would look like but I think we know what he's doing. He's trying the best he can to capture these attributes of the exalted Christ. It, it would be like if you wanted to, now we're, we're past Valentine's Day, but if you were you know writing a Valentine, or you wanted to say something about the person you love, and I'm thinking of a man talking about his wife, you'd say things like, maybe, my wife has a neck like a swan. Right? I'm sure you say that often about your wife. And, and, I, and I think, okay, that probably means she's elegant or she, she has dignity. But what if you literally picture her with a swan's neck? Long, skinny, I'm not sure that would be terribly attractive. She has eyes like pool's. I think I know what that means. I probably think swimming pools, sparkly eyes, but there are all kinds of pools, cesspools, what kind of pool <laughs> and, and And what would you really be attracted to a woman who had swimming pools for eyes And, and we might say things like, uh, she has long, you know dark hair um and and, and that can be but I mean. That could be hair coming out anywhere. I mean, is that really, what are we talking about here? But I think we all know what you mean when you're using those kinds of descriptors. I think we should do the same thing with this. Not just a flat-footed literalism, but this is the best way he can describe these attributes, and these images fall short. That's who's sending these letters. And here's his message to this church. In verse two, I know your deeds. I know. The one with the eyes like blazing fire, the one with the face shining like sun, he knows. You can't hide. I know your deeds. And usually that leads to something positive. I know your deeds. This is a church that's active, that's doing something. I know your hard work. It's just a word that, it's, it's another word in Greek that means more arduous or difficult labor. I know your works. I know your hard labor. The difference between those two would be like going and punching the clock and doing your job tomorrow. That's work. Think about a woman going into labor. That'd be a good way to describe this second word, labor. It's more difficult, challenging, arduous work. And I know your endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. And that that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. They do not tolerate false teaching. This is to their credit. Here is the affirmation. I know your work. I know your deeds. I know your endurance. I know you don't put up with false teaching. This is all affirmation. You have endured hardships for my name. And you have not grown weary. It's a great affirmation. Sounds like there's a lot of good going on in the church at Ephesus. But here's the correction. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at the first. Now he doesn't describe whether he's talking about love for their brothers and sisters. That's possible. But more likely it's love for the Lord. For this exalted Christ. You've lost the love you had at the first. Maybe at the beginning you were, we'd say, on fire. You valued your relationship with Christ. What does he say to those who've grown cold in their relationship, who don't love like they loved at the beginning? Well, he says, remember. That's the first thing he says. If you look back there in verse 5, consider how far you have fallen. Remember. Think back to that time when your Christianity was still meaningful to you. To that time when you realized you'd experienced the love of the God who made everything that exists. That he loved you. Can you remember the time when you still had excitement that you had been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light? Do you remember that time? recognition when it first dawned on you that you were a spiritual orphan and now you become a son or daughter of God adopted into his family with an inheritance from him. Do you still remember what it was like to look forward to times of prayer rather than thinking of it like a dose of spiritual medicine? Can you still remember what it was like when your love was filled with enthusiasm and vigor. You can see it in a relationship of a husband and a wife. You know, you see people early on in their relationship, and he's opening doors for her and opening the car door, and they're holding hands, and they sit on the same side of the table when they go out to eat, and there are all these little, little gestures that can, you can make that says, I'm, I don't just say I love you. I'm in love with you now. After 26 years, in my case, working on 27, I think we also see the signs that can indicate that a relationship has grown a bit mundane, cold, still together, may still do all the niceties, may still sign the, thanks, or th- the Thanksgiving card. Uh, that'd be good too, the Valentine's card. I love you. But you know the difference When the love is there like it was there at the beginning. And here's the correction they need. Your love's not like it was when you first entered into your relationship. So remember what that was like. And then it's repent. The first thing he says to do in light of that is remember. Now repent and do the things you did at the first. Start to correct. Turn and go in the other direction. Remember what that relationship was like and repent of where you are today. Say to God, I've gone after other lovers. I have replaced you as the love of my life and I repent. Now that's not just feeling guilty for a few moments when you're reading over the text or when you're sitting in church and then going out And going about your relationship in the same way, that requires a change in your relationship. You start to turn in another direction and move towards Christ. In the same kind of love that you had earlier in your Christianity. So remember and repent, and then he just says it, and do the things you did at the first. What were those things you were doing When you were a new Christian, when you were a young Christian, you might not have had all the knowledge you have now, but you had something else. There was a fire. There was an enthusiasm about your relationship. Think about what you were doing then and go back and do those things. We're always thinking about leaving the past behind and looking forward. There are some things it's good to remember. And I would guess... At the heart of that was practices like your spiritual disciplines, reading your Bible, looking forward to reading it, not doing it like it's this great obligation you have, praying because it's about the ability to communicate with the God of the universe who loved you and delivered you from your sins. I'm gonna assume those spiritual disciplines are part of it, but there's often other things you used to do that stirred your love for christ maybe you're a poet maybe you wrote poems that was a way of exercising some of this creative ability you have and that was a way of showing love to god well write some poetry maybe you can pick up a guitar like some of these people on the stage and put words to music now i can't do that but you do you i might want to go out and run five miles And uh, that might not be somebody else's thing, but maybe maybe you feel God's pleasure when you run. Maybe that's something that helps stir that passion that you have for Christ. Visit a cemetery. You weren't expecting that one, were you? Every time in, in November, I went back and spoke at the college I graduated from, which is in my hometown. Every time I go back, go to the cemetery where my mother's buried my grandmother's buried, uncles, aunts my other set of grandparents are buried in the same cemetery I go up there and look at the headstones and clear them off if they need clearing off there's something about a walk through the cemetery and seeing these where the bodies were buried of the people you've loved much of your life and know the only hope Of ever seeing that person again is what Christ has done for us that'll stir your passion then you might be walking back to the car and you're in a section of the cemetery where you don't know these people although sadly I walk through there and know more of the names see people I grew up with then you see on a headstone someone who's there in the grave who was born the same year you were born 1965 and you realize that could be me. By the grace of God, I'm alive today, and I'm going to live my life for him. Funny how walking walk in a cemetery will do that for you. Remember what that relationship was like when it was new, and it had enthusiasm and vigor. Repent if you've fallen from that, and return to that kind of relationship. And he says, whoever has ears, in verse 7, I'll talk about the Nicolaitans tonight. He says in verse 7, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Adam and Eve, were, they were free to eat, in, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, from the tree of life. They just weren't supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were cast outside the garden and separated from the tree of life. And on that day, they began to die. And we've been separated, in a sense, from that tree of life, which comes into play at the very end of Revelation, where once again, we eat from the tree of life. Here's the motivating promise. If you endure, if you return to that relationship you had with him, you will eat from the tree of life. I think it's a way of saying you will share in the presence of Christ. Hear what the Spirit has to say to the church today. Let us pray. Father, I pray that through... What you wrote to this church at Ephesus 2,000 years ago. This church, Emmaus Baptist Church, may hear a word from your spirit. May our ears and hearts be open to affirmation and correction. And if we need to repent, may we do it today. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen.